It's time for Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Morning, Keith. Good day, sir. Good day to you. I know you heard my conversation there with pollster Shachi Curl, and we were talking about the federal liberal strategy here, Mm -hmm. comparing Pierre Polyev to Donald Trump. Let's listen to a little bit more of that liberal online ad. So this is from the Liberal Party. It was an ad they posted online directly comparing Polyev to Trump. Let's listen. We have to stop with political correctness. Woke political correctness. Defeating the radical left. Radical leftist authoritarian agenda. We want those great Canadian truckers to know that we are with them all the way. I'm proud of the truckers and I stand with them. You know, this is an ad that I spoke to some liberals who told me though they thought this was absolutely brilliant and would really well, work. And I talked to a lot of other people that had turned them right off. They didn't like it. Yeah, it's clever on one hand. On the other hand, I, I'm not sure anything the liberals can do is going to work mm. against Poliev. Mm. I mean, he's got a huge crowd out here in B.C. Is just he's in B.C. Of, today. Yeah. Yep. Um, he could run the table in B.C. in terms of ridings. I don't think uh, maybe a couple of NDP seats are safe. I don't think any liberal seats safe in B.C. Mm. Um, but there's a difference between Trump's language and Trump's actions. And that's where I think it falls short with with Poliev. I mean, Donald Trump has a very significant, strong anti-democratic streak to him, yeah. authoritarianism. Um, and I don't think there's much evidence to support that Poliev is like that. I mean, he's not using that sort of same inflammatory language when it comes to locking up his opponents. Yeah, right. That type of thing. Yeah. That, there's a fundamental difference between saying going after the woke left. Well, fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, yeah. saying that. But it's locking up the woke left, which is what Trump's talking or about. Or like Trump saying that the elections were stolen, yeah. you know, and I've never heard Polyev no. question the integrity no. of Canadian I elections. I mean, Polyev is significantly much more right-wing than his predecessors. Sure. But that's all that's all fair in yeah. well and good in, in politics. You can yeah. be far left, you can be far right. What do you think when the... you get into the anti-democratic, the authoritarianism, which is dangerous, uh, which is what Trump is, uh, is where where those alarm bells should go off, but we're not seeing that with Poliev. Yeah, that's why I think a lot of Canadian voters won't buy the comparison there. What do you think the Liberals need to do, though, to close this gap? You don't think they can do anything. It's got to be a policy question. Well, the the election is still a long ways well, yeah. off. It's yeah. October of 2025. Yeah. And again, the question about Trump could change. What if he wins the election and becomes this despot? Um, you know, people's views of that. But again, that might... F- further the distance between him and Poliev and work to Poliev's advantage. If Trump becomes this crazy guy in the White House and they keep comparing Poliev to this crazy guy in the White House, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. So, But again, back to the fundamental question, I think the liberals are still scratching their heads. What is it going to take to get back? Is it mean, does it mean changing le- the leader? That's mm-hmm. one of the fundamental question. Does it mean Trudeau leaving? Yeah. And I think right now he's got the most baggage of anything in that party. And his brand has been wounded. I'm not sure he can get it back. Okay. Polyev in B.C. here the next few days. We'll follow that closely. At, at, at 9 o'clock this morning. Yeah. I believe he's in Vancouver today, right? Yeah. I think so, yeah. And then he's, he's in B.C. He's, he's going to other ridings. You can tell that he's visiting ridings they think they can pick up here. Well, he was in Coquitlam so. last night, uh-huh. the big crowd. That's, you know, James Moore territory, the old conservative um, MP there. Yeah, there, he senses uh, a lot of pickups yeah, in BC. For sure. I mean, they're flying high in the polls here. Yeah. Let's talk about the bus strike here. So, buses, the C bus also shut down in Metro Vancouver, and these two sides seem far apart here. Um, the, it's supposed to be a two day strike. I wonder if it could drag on longer than that. Let's listen to Tony Ribello here, president of QP7000. Have a listen. They've had two weeks to come to the table and talk to the union. 
but ultimately all they've done is hired a PR firm to blame the union on, on this strike when they haven't come back to the table at all since they've served their 72 hours notice almost two weeks ago. Your thoughts? Well, the union is looking for a 25% wage increase over three years for transit supervisors, which is almost double that of what the public sector unions have been getting on the provincial side. The employers offered something more akin to what has been reached through negotiations on the provincial side, which is 13.5%. Yeah. Uh, so that's a significant um, gap. Vince Reddy's still involved, the miracle worker. He's still on the, on the scene. He, he was uh, just an inf- informal mediator. I assume he's going to be formally appointed a special mediator, which gives him 10 days. And Reddy's, Reddy's method is basically make the sides feel some pain, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sweat it out. And then lock them in a room. No one comes out until there's a deal. So he really likes to put the pressure on both sides. Yeah. And we're not seeing that yet. We're, you know, there's no pressure. It's it's when operations shut down and paychecks are withheld is when you see pressure. In what about dispute. what about public opinion on this? Like, if you take a look at these wage demands here from these transit supervisors. So, like you said, the employer here had offered thirteen point five percent. They say that that would boost their annual salary to these supervisors to $104,000 after just three years. What? Three years and you're making six figures in this job? Wow. Well, and if for the union, uh, 25% bumps it up to one, 115. 115,000 is, is what the union the says they're asking for. people do not make six-figure income. Well, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the sort of battle for the hearts and minds of the public here, do the public have a lot of sympathy for... Transit no. supervisors well, making six figures. I don't think that's the motivation at the bargaining table from the union's perspective. Yeah. Um, they know public opinion is going to be against uh, any work stoppage, anyways. If you can't take your bus or C bus or SkyTrain, you're going to get mad. Yeah, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to be happy. Yeah. So, let's, yeah. let's listen to Anita Huberman here, president of the Surrey Board of Trade, calling for the government to get involved here. Let's listen. If the strike continues, the province really needs to step in to ensure that. The transit uh, is labeled as a critical service. We really need to ensure that we have a transportation system that we can rely on. Well, you know, the NEP uh, is very reluctant to intervene in a labor dispute. Harry Baines, the labor minister, says over and over again, the best deal is one that's reached at the negotiating table. And that's the position. So it would have to take a prolonged work stoppage for the government to step in. Two days is not going to do it. The House is not in session. It would require, my read, it would require legislation. It's not going to be ended through cabinet order. So the House is not sitting. It doesn't sit until mid-February. Oh, boy. So that's still a ways away. Um, so I think the, li- the prospects of the government intervening in this are slim, but not completely um, unimaginable. You know, I remember John Horgan as premier, very much a laissez-faire premier. Let his ministers run. Take a long rope. You do what you want. This government under David Eby is much more centralized in the premier's office. Mm. The premier's office has much more control over ministries. So it's, the question is not whether Harry Baines wants to get involved. It's whether the premier's office wants to get involved. And they may have a different take on things if it's a prolonged strike. Well, especially in an election year. I wonder I wonder if Eby might be – I mean, look how long that strike dragged on in the valley there. Those bus drivers there. Big, big difference, I think, between the valley yeah. and and m- most of Metro Vancouver. Oh, yeah. We're talking a heck of a lot more people affected. And, again, the NDP lives and dies in Metro Vancouver. Their yeah. political fortunes is the suburbs. 
and the urban core. That's where all their MLAs are from, basically. So, again, I wouldn't completely rule out the government intervention, but I think it's early days. You know, one or two days, three days yeah. is not going to do it. Keep in mind, the NDP in the 1990s, we call Dan Miller as labor minister, did legislate an end to a bus driver strike. Mm. So there is some precedent there. Yeah. But again, I think it's it's early days for this. Okay, watching that really closely. Let's finish with the federal government announcing these caps on the number of international students coming to Canada. Now, you could see this one coming a mile off. We've been talking a lot about it on the show recently. This is a program that has no limits, uncapped. Mm-hmm. 800,000 international students in Canada last year putting pressure on the housing system, among other among other things. Here is the federal immigration minister, Mark Miller, announcing the cap. Today, I am announcing a temporary two-year cap on new international student permits. For 2024, the cap is expected to result in approximately 364,000 approved study permits, a decrease of 35% from 2023. Your thoughts? Well, so in BC, um, first three quarters of 2023, I think we had about 107,000 non-permanent immigrants most of them foreign students. That's yeah. up from about 85,000 the year before. The first quarter of, 2020, of 2023, I think, was something like 55,000, which is three times the record. So it's gone up it, a lot. It's gone up a huge amount. It's, yeah. it, David Eby's voiced some, some concern about this cap because um, basically universities and colleges have come to depend on the revenue stream from a number of these students. Because they also, pay more, they pay more in tuition than do. domestic students. UBC would, would so thirty five percent cut. If you apply that to the number of students in BC, thirty five percent reduction. That's going to hit the universities and colleges. Yeah, and they're going to be looking to the provincial government for money to make up that that shortfall in revenue. So the, the feds had to do something, though. Yep. I mean this this program was so, out of control. Well, I don't think it's going to stop with international students. There's the overall immigration figure: yeah. five hundred thousand people a year, ostensibly. A number of them are supposed to be filling skilled workplaces. The evidence yet to support that, that that's actually happening. But uh, we'll see if the government moves on that. I, I was amazed they let this thing drag on to the, to the point that it did. Because we, we talked in the show last week about the Statistics Canada report that came out that indicated 19% of international students in Canada, there was no evidence that no. they had attended any classes. They go to these diploma, diploma mills. Yeah, they're like these fake schools. Yeah. Like we talked about this last week too. In immigration circles, it's known as they're known as no-show schools. Yeah. <laughs> school you don't, even, you don't go to school. So one-fifth of, of those 107,000 non-permanent residents are basically coming in to get a, well, a phony diploma. And diploma. to work. And to work. You're allowed to work. Uh, while you're here, and it's a path to permanent residence. The, this is why you know international students want to come here. They want to stay here. Yep, and the pressure, though, uh, that it brings to various forms of infrastructure, not the least of which is housing, of course. is significant. Yeah, okay. Keith Baldry is my guest. Call me right now. The phone lines are open. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Ross and Burnaby. Hi, Ross. Go ahead. Hey, everyone. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this uh, with the union strikes, um, with the paramedics and, and various other um, associations. Um, we want to call them a critical service or an essential service and treat them the same and pay them well and don't just undercut them and say, oh, you get your 1% like everybody else does or, or whatever the, the norm is. Um, it's, it's frustrating to hear this come up every time. There's a, there's a large strike that affects people. 
Okay, thank you for that. So, essential. Tell me about an essential service designation. How did this? How does this work? Because apparently it doesn't cover the transit system, right? No. So, You'd think, it, wouldn't it, the transit system be an essential service? It can work different ways. Where an, a, a certain segment of your workforce is deemed to be essential. Yeah. You know, we see that in healthcare, right? Where you know if nurses are going on strike, it's not a hundred percent, but yeah. certain. So essential service levels are are set by the labor relations board. Yes. And that would presumably work here, but we're, they're not covered, uh, as far as I know, by that designation under the labor. Right, group. right, right. Do you think it should be? I mean, the transit well, system is pretty, pretty transit essential. Transit system is pretty essential. I mean, yeah. it's, it's vital to the economy. Yeah. To get people move and uh, get people moving around to get to work. Yeah. Now there's you know more and more people working from home. Yeah. So this transit strike now is probably going to have less impact than it would have been five years ago yeah. because the pandemic really shifted. The working model for so many people. So many people. The provincial government has well. If you want to work from home, yeah. fine. Um, and a number of people in Victoria, for example, are doing that. That's why the downtown Victoria has had a number of restaurant close closures because people just aren't going for lunch because they're not working downtown. Do you think labor unrest is something we'll see more of? I mean, we're in an economy now where uh, there are worker shortages, so workers have got a lot more mobility. They can move mm -hmm. around. Uh, we're living in a, a high inflation period where people are seeing their paychecks not keeping up with their we costs. Are see right? we, so we have been seeing the unions saying we need, you know, we want, we're getting more demanding. We've seen more disruptions in the past year than, than before. Yeah. Uh, you're right. The cost of living is now a factor that wasn't there before. And... There's a generation of workers that are just more mobile and willing to leave right. a profession and go somewhere else yep. if the pay isn't good enough. So, yep. yeah, there's a number of labor relations experts who have been predicting more labor unrest uh, in the year. We're ahead. seeing it. Yep. Susan in North Vancouver. Hi, Susan. Go ahead. I would like to talk to uh, about Mr. Pollier and the Conservatives. I well sure. think they will get him. I don't think they're going to last. This generation hasn't had a taste of what Conservatives are all about if you look at the history of conservatives, we could start off with health care and stuff back in 1968. At the same time, they voted against the Canada Pension Plan. They voted against a minimum wage. They voted against overtime. They voted against um, other things. Okay. Um, Harper, back when he was in power, he stopped uh, transfer payments for health care, um, the increases and didn't do much uh, to make the health care system better. Uh, okay. He didn't. Thank you, Susan, for the call. Well, I mean, if, if Polyev did win an election and launched some sort of a restraint agenda... Well, I don't know. Maybe the honeymoon would not last very long. It, it might not. But again, to be fair, if you want to start looking at federal governments that started to cut health care, it began at Paul Martin mm. and, and the Liberals. I mean, his finance minister, it was, that's when they started cutting the transfer payments to provinces. So, yeah, and then Harper revisited the formula and cut it even more. But the cuts began in the 90s under the Liberals. Let's uh, squeeze in one more call. Blair in Delta. Blair, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hey, guys. Yeah, just with regards to the supervisors and their strike and the money that they want to make, I, I just have a question. I don't know whether you guys know it or not. What do they do? What's a supervisor do? You know, there's Keith. 180 of them. What do they do to earn that kind of money? Keith, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I see them on the street here outside the parliament buildings going from bus to bus, uh, presumably telling the drivers some updates of route closures well, and such. Well, some context for you is that 
the union is saying they want parity with SkyTrain supervisors. This is why they want this big raise. The employer is saying the SkyTrain supervisors have more responsibilities than the bus driver supervisors. I don't. They manage bigger staffs. Bus, buses.